Hey everyone, you're listening to the SIMP Investing Podcast, where we discuss everything finance or business related. So SIMP stands for Simplified, Integrity, Meaning and Prudence. You can find us on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts and give us a follow at Instagram at SIMP Investing. So just a disclaimer before we officially begin, we'd like to put out that the information discussed does not constitute the financial advice and serve only for educational or entertainment purposes. Hi everybody, today we have the pleasure of having Rishabh Pawari, who is the CEO and co-founder of uh, Hive, Hive Botics. Um, okay, so thanks Rishabh for coming out here. Uh, okay, so I guess first question is, um, can you introduce to the audience, what do you do? How do you get to where you are and how did you even start building this startup or the Hive Botics uh, company? Yeah. Thank you, Nathan and Benson for inviting me. So, uh, at Hive Botics, we are building autonomous robotic bathroom cleaners that we hope one day will be able to automate bathroom cleaning for commercial settings, such as in malls, hospitals, hotels, and airports. So that's what we are doing. And now, how did we get started? Well, the journey is very long. We didn't even get started on this idea at first. Um, maybe some of you guys have heard of the NUS Overseas College Program. So I was on the Overseas College Program, and I wanted to build a startup. And, you know, when you are trying to build a startup, the first advice to get is to find a problem. The problem I found was from my scout leader. So my scout leader, I, I used to be part of the scout movement and I had a scout leader who is the director of a cleaning company. And I went to his office one day, I saw a giant map of Singapore with a lot of sites on it. And he was having an extremely difficult challenge trying to manage the workers at those sites because the absent things were not getting done and you're having a great headache. So I started off by trying to build a case management platform that can help him to manage it with the workers. But along the way, and we went along, we realized that this is a red ocean market with so many players in the market and we want to do something different. The problem remains the same. The problem is that, you know, workers' uh, productivity and uh, worker shortages there and the productivity issues. So cleaning company are facing a huge manpower management and uh, availability issues. So we tried to solve the problem from this different angle, which was that we built a robotic solution to automate cleaning itself rather than try to improve the efficiency of existing manpower. And that's how we pivoted over to uh, where we are at today, at Hypotics. And uh, we also very, uh, why we actually went down this path is because when we did our market interviews, you know, customers, we, we, we felt like we already hit a product market fit. So we knew that we were on the right track. This stuff is as a market need. And uh, coming from a computer engineering background, uh, we had a confidence that we can actually bring the product, the, the product to life and uh, get everyone to use it. So, yeah, that's how we came about to where we are today. And, yeah, looking forward to seeing our robots all over Singapore and the world. Okay. Can I ask, right, because uh, to wind back a bit. So, you did software engineering, right? And you went to an overseas program, did internship uh, at a company, Taskit, which is software, I think, project management, right? So, can I ask, like, what, what did you learn there? in that company that, like, you know, really helped you in this experience? So in that case, I think it was one of my first proper internships uh, ever in my life. So I had the first hand experience of working with the early state startup. The team was very small, including me. I think there were only about six people in the team and the founders. So I had a lot of uh, time to interact with the founders to understand how they think. For example, uh, what are next priorities? in product development in terms of prioritizing. So those were the things that picked up. 
uh, you know, software engineering, yeah, definitely get a lot of tangible experience to do those stuff. I think the most valuable portion was actually the chance to work in an early stage team and to learn about the challenges that they face. And looking at some of the solutions for them that I'm able to find now in my own startup. Okay. Could you share like what experiences does? So I'm guessing Tusky was growing fast, right? And right. Uh, they already have product market fit. So what were the things that you learned there? Yeah, I think uh, in my, I don't think Tusky was a product market fit either. They've also trying to find product market fit. So in, in that sense, uh, we are a bit of a unique situation where we have that product market fit. But uh, development is a challenge for us because we are developing the novel technology that doesn't exist in the world yet. We are first in the world. So that's our challenge. It's a bit of a reverse problem. But I think what I took away from my internship was uh, how to manage a team. So, for example, uh, having an agile workflow in Tuskit uh, allowed me to review, you know, when things are not getting done, uh, how do you chase people to get things done, how do you uh, manage expectations and deliverables. So both are the things that I took away and I'm using them extensively now. Okay. And so you moved on to Hybotics, which is completely hardware-based, right? So, um. I mean, the most natural progression, I would think, is you go to software. So why the heck would you go into like hardware engineering? Yeah. I think I back to this, but I don't think robotics is completely hardware-based. I think uh, robotics in the current day and age is a lot about applications. So hardware is something that you you have a general concept. You find people that already have those and you integrate those things together. The work that we do is still primarily software-based, developing algorithms, developing solutions for manipulation of the hardware. So it's a bit different. It's not the same as software engineering per se, but a lot of the skills are still transferable. For example, thinking in a uh, in a manner of uh, breaking down a problem with a small bit and reusing uh, solutions uh, as much as possible. So you don't have to you know, spend much time thinking about usability. All things are still the same, whether it is in like robotic programming or it is in like software engineering. Uh, so I actually have a question about um, tech architecture so, because I'm not really a tech guy. So this is my first time uh, I had a, recently joined an internship at a tech firm. So there's this concept of tech architecture and code. So uh, I'm not sure whether like established businesses, right? Like uh, for example, giants out there and then also like startups like yours. Do you guys focus a lot on like building up the tech ar- architecture to make sure like perhaps you can scale in terms of optionalities in the future, building more features or you guys are just like focusing on getting the things uh achieving one thing at a time and just like trying to scale as much as possible okay so i think this is a very good question um one of the realizations now is that at least for robotics the thing is that you need to move fast as fast as possible find the easier solution to get things done because once you have the money you can re you can literally get like you know experienced engineers pay them money and they can do it within a few weeks uh, you know the same thing from start again but when you don't have money, it's all about proving your concept, getting the, 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 the confidence from your investors, from your clients, so you can move to the next stage. So at this stage, I think we we do have some sort of architecture because even at the early stage, you need to think about integration of multiple things. But I wouldn't say we are thinking about you know how scalable it is or not, because we know that it will have to be redone again in the future with uh, you know more professional and more experienced teams. Understood. So uh, you mentioned that uh, maybe funds is a big issue, but do you see any other bigger trouble that you face? I, I would imagine like in a startup, you will face everything, right? From ops, uh, maybe tech, uh, finding product market fit. 
So what, what do you think is uh, another issue that you're facing? Okay. I think for hyperbolics is very, very specific. We lack talent. I think in the Singapore pool and uh, the, the stuff that they're doing is really cutting edge. It's like the cutting edge of robotics itself. Uh, really first in the world kind of stuff. So there's a research element involved as well. So that's why I think finding talent uh, that is able to deliver within our product milestone is a big challenge. Money-wise, to be very frank, uh, it is also a challenge because when there's hardware involved, inventory costs, the VCs are a bit more wary. Although there are VCs who specialize in these fields and they are willing to take in the risk, but I can tell you that in Singapore, 99% of the VCs are not going to do. They are not going to invest in us because we are hardware and the risk portfolio is much higher for them. So that's one of the reasons. But at the same time, it's a high risk, high reward kind of situation when it comes to you know, hardware. Speaking of hardware, right? Uh, because I know that uh, manufacturing will be a thing. So have you guys started manufacturing or uh, are planning to do so? What are you, you planning to do it offshore or onshore? What do you define as manufacturing? Because uh, I would think that you have a like, hardware-related uh, device, right? So you need to like produce that in masses and scale. The business really takes off quickly. Okay. I'll give you my definition of manufacturing. My definition of manufacturing is whatever you can find on the market, buy bring everything to Singapore, assemble, put in a code, sell. That's my definition of manufacturing. Oh, uh, why, 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 is there a particular reason why you want to bring it to Singapore instead of maybe doing overseas? I think we are doing the assembly here. Uh, when we at this early stage, of course, in the future, we'll probably need to scale, but I think for assembly purposes, uh, I mean, one of the good things for robotics, actually, Singapore is the market. Normally, Singapore is not a market. But when it comes to robotics, Singapore is one of the bigger markets in the world that can afford to pay and has a strong need for such solutions. So uh, bringing the Singapore for family at this stage makes sense for us. Subsequently, you know, we have been talking to countries like Vietnam, India uh, as well. Uh, but the cost differential actually is not much when it comes to uh, high-end, you know, productions like this. So you anyway, everything gets produced in China. And you are importing them over and assembling them together. I think maybe increasingly more and more parts will come from Japan, from US. So it's really not much of a difference uh, when it comes to the components. But we are not doing like assembly in the sense of like you know, fabricating our own molds and stuff yet. We are doing off the shelf components that are standard size, putting them together and putting our logic and application. Rishabh, can I ask, right? Um, so the like toilet cleaning is a, is a big problem. Like in general, people, it's like manual labor and stuff like that. But uh, what's the first, like how, how did you get in touch of this problem? Or like, were you facing a pain point? Like where, where did that come from? Okay, I think uh, how we get, how we narrow down the toilet cleaning is that first of all, we did understand the cleaning industry, you know, knowing that there's a manpower shortage. So for the cleaning industry, there were two main problems that they were struggling to sort out. One was... Uh, trying to get enough manpower like, to get things done. And one way to reduce uh, you know, the need for so much manpower is to reduce the time taken for cleaning tasks. And among all the cleaning tasks, soil cleaning was the most time-consuming and the most years, which had the most friction between the employers and employees as well, because you know, nobody wants to do it. There's also sunset industry. So soil cleaning has always been the biggest problem in the cleaning industry for commercial cleaning. It's the most tedious, there's a lot of corners, a lot of expectations, and 
the biggest challenge to find manpower to it. So it was known, but it was a high hanging fruit than say things like floor cleaning because they are also uh, monetizable, they're easier to achieve, uh, and so on and so forth. But soil cleaning is a high hanging fruit. So that's one of the reasons why nobody has done it in the world before. And we are one of the first to really tackle this problem because we didn't look at low hanging fruit. We immediately aimed for the sky. But uh, when you aim for the sky from day one, you also find a way to reach the sky from day one. So that's how we looked at it. So we looked at the high hanging fruit. I can tell you for sure that the bigger companies, they are looking at solving the toilet cleaning problem next. Uh, after floor cleaning is done, which is already very established now, they are looking at it. It is a pipeline. So for us to be happen to be, you know, really early stage, like as a startup, we've been looking at it, delivering prototypes. So we are getting a lot of interest from the big companies mm. that you can think of in the market. And they want to acquire, you know, our technology yep. and stuff to accelerate their own development. So this is something uh, that we have uh, as opportunity as well. Okay, why product cleaning? Because, uh, like I said, it's the most time consuming and most tedious. But there's other areas where cleaning has issues. It's like, for example, staircase cleaning, especially when the, the cleaners are getting older and older. So they are not able to do staircase cleaning. Those are other things that are coming up. We were evaluating between them. Mm. But uh, we were most interested to solve the quality problem because uh, I think it is something that's not everything is logic. Sometimes some of the, uh, some of the decisions that are made, they're also made based on like, your personal affinity to the uh, problem that you want to solve and the thing that we were always admitted to do something that nobody wants to do. Yeah. So that uh, led us to move towards solving a menial task problem. Okay. So this was, uh, what, 2021, 2020? Like when, when did this idea like first start? I think this idea was uh, first conceptualized in 2020 uh, after my NOC. It was just, uh, I made, I just paid a designer to make a video of my concept and that's what we use to raise our initial funds. Okay. So, uh, are you in GRIP, by the way? The venture we incubator have, uh, thing? We have so we have already completed GRIP. Okay. So, you go into GRIP, then the, I'm guessing the first con, sorry, the first objective is to validate concept and see whether people want to buy this thing and then stuff like that, right? So, mm -hmm. after GRIP, what happens? Like, how do you go about uh, further developing okay. and, yeah. Okay, so uh, interesting story for us. So uh, usually when um, teams join Grip, they already have an IP, a patient, uh, something that's uh, been worked upon for years, and they're trying to monetize it. Mm. Yeah, nothing. So when the Grip, we had a product market that's in a sense, like we had a product that had solved a market problem. Uh, it's kind of a reverse problem because most Grip startups would go in with a solution and try to find a product market fit for it. But for us, we had a product market fit, but we had no solution. So we were trying to build our prototype yep. during grip itself. It was very intense. The first time we pitched to grip, we actually didn't get to because uh, we had concerns over our business model as well as our um, prototype technical readiness because the grip has a high expectation for technical readiness. Mm. So we made our first video and it was not good enough. It was not something I actually told people. It's something that you really must take 100 videos and one of them will get. So from then, we it was a bit of a setback. But uh, we, I think after that, we actually ran out of money as well. Because like the funds that Grip gives is really close to 10,000. Mm -hmm. So we pumped in our own money. And when you pump in your own money, suddenly things are very, very different. You know, it suddenly works out. Yeah, it's finally, uh, finally you, you figure out whatever you can yeah. do. So for me, I pumped in about $15,000 to buy a robot arm. Yeah. And suddenly I was like, okay, this arm must do things for me. I can't <laughs> just lie around there anymore. And it must work. 
So then the whole machinery starts moving and uh, we really got another prototype up within the last three months. And that's a prototype that you see now in our video. It was done up in three months. Uh, a lot of things are still yet to be done, but it's a real workable uh, proof of concept that we can show around people, demonstrate that it can do cleaning, may not be able to do cleaning well, but it is able to do cleaning and uh, use that as a benchmark to you know, upgrade form and improve to something I can sell one day. Okay, you keep saying we, right? So I'm guessing you have co-founders or multiple co-founders? I have a co-founder, a single co-founder. Okay. And that person, is he technical as well alongside you or is he the sales yes, guy? Yes. Yeah. So my co-founder is on mechanical engineering, he's also an undergraduate. Mm. And, uh, but the way we work is that both our backgrounds are a bit unique. They are not completely technical. Both of us have a very unique background. He, even though he's a mechanical engineer, he has a lot of experience uh, as an intern in uh, a VC doing an as analyst role. So that is his background. For myself, the went to Silicon Valley for the NOC program, a lot more experience for entrepreneurship. So we are a bit of a hybrid team. We are neither, we are both technical and not technical at the same time. If you ask me, do I have the technical abilities to build this product itself? Uh, I would say yes, I would take forever because it's, uh, the amount of uh, technical expertise needed for such a robotic solution, you need a PhD. Yep. So now what we are done, we hire a PhD. Yep. So it's about building the team and I think the technical experience definitely helps at the very early stage. So you can get things moving, you understand things faster, you lose less money. But as things move, we need to find the right talent and build our team, which is what we are doing now. And we started to build our team to a very stable position now. Okay. Uh, I've seen the video. It's like an arm and then the arm is cleaning the window, right? Sorry, the mirror, right? The mirror in the toilet, something like that. And oh, the urinal. That's the old video. That's the old video. Okay. Have you seen the new video? I'm sorry. Uh, it's a... It's a, it's a robot that moves on its own now. Okay. So what, what, so from, from that point of view, right? Okay, you got MVP. It works. It clearly cleans the toilet. Not well, but it cleans, right? Okay. So do you take it's that marketing, yeah. <laughs> do you take that marketing material and then you go and sell to like Changi Apple and stuff? Like how does that go from commercialization? Okay. Yeah. So, so I think uh, this is something we're also learning because we haven't commercialized yet. So take whatever I say with a pinch of salt. But... Uh, I think for us, the journey has really started. Once we had those videos, we were no longer contacting people, people contacting us. Those videos, the social media, whether it's a good thing or bad thing, is something we'll find out, you know, at the first of time, uh, whether, you know, publishing, uh, publicizing such things out too early is a good thing or bad thing. Yeah. But uh, I think those videos out, we managed to get a lot of action, a lot of interest from hotels, from property management companies, cleaning companies, hospitals, everywhere you can think about. Mm. But after we watch the, okay, the, the thing is that next thing is they want to see a live demo. So are you ready for a live demo? Okay. And if you get a live demo, the next thing you will say, okay, what is our next mouse for the next 18 months? Yep. How much money do you need? So how much money do you need to build a team, to burn, to do development, to do a prototype? Yep. What is the expected milestone? That's what we are doing now. And when you get this milestone, people, Oh, in fact, I think if people are willing to put in the money, mm-hmm. next thing is delivering or those, those milestones. So that's basically the early stage start. And once you get those stuff up, you get the production, then you raise the A and you move on to scaling. It's a different journey altogether. But at this stage, the focus is on product, product, product. Okay. So for the interest side, right, the hotels and stuff, they were, uh, they are the customers plus also they fund plus I'm sure they want some equity because they're funding it, right? Am I correct? Okay, got it. So, uh, yes, yeah. So in this uh, sector, I think like I 
like I said, a VC, so this is high risk business for them, especially pre uh, revenue. If your product is not out yet, it's a very high risk revenue uh, business for them. So what happens is that uh, usually clients uh, tend to be a major investors in this way. So usually you call it an angel round. The thing is the science that they're pumping it through to $3 million, then it's no longer angel round. It's yep. pretty major round. So um, in this space, as it's for high-end robotics, clients can be a major investor. Uh, and they hear very differently. They have better interest in the product success. Because, mm-hmm. for example, if we build a robot that has been invested in my cleaning companies, then they have a competitive advantage in the entire cleaning business. Mm-hmm. They have a low operating cost. And for example, if they have things like exclusivity for some company, then you know we can't sell to the competitors. So the cleaning company has advantage, for example. So these are things that clients would want. Um, and as a startup, we are always trying to find what's the best solution for us. Yep. Uh, sorry, but to circle back to the team, because right? you mentioned earlier your co-founder, he has VC experience. Do you feel that he's, because of his experience in VCs, right? So he's very analytical, analyzes a lot of business models. So that he sort of like, did he help to build up the business model for the company and also, uh, you know, like get, think about the cash flow in the future, kind of starting embedding the one uh, business model? Definitely, definitely. I think the experience of the international model and stuff, but one thing you realize is that this state, whatever models you make, they're just a pain to solve because uh, no, the VCs don't even look at them. So they look at them more towards like, these are investing in founders at the state. Uh, they want you to go through the process so that you know you start thinking about those things. But uh, honestly, the numbers at the state, they are, you know, can only be taken a bit of off. So maybe the only reliability you can get is maybe for the next two or three months. But beyond that, all projections are there's a lot of assumptions that you don't have experience to justify. For sure. So another question I have is, um, so as a co-founder, right, and, and, the C, as a, and the CEO at the same time, like, because you're building up a team. So uh, I would like to understand further from and like, what do you consider as the important building blocks of your team at this context? At where the stage it is now, and how do you identify the right talent for the right role? Right. Okay, I think uh, first of all, I'll start by finding co-founders. I think that's a question a lot of people ask me. I'm very, very happy working with my co-founder. And I can tell you that it didn't come easy. That to really, it was a very organized process for me to find a co-founder. And I think uh, we have a very good sense in both. So how did I do it? So previously, I had another startup initiative. I went together with friends, you know, look at all oh, technical guy, business guy, marketing guy. Let's get together, do things together. It's a disaster, you know, because at the end of the day, you are you shouldn't be looking at skills alone, and you know, uh, you should be looking at the person's uh, work behavior, their dedication, their commitment. Those things are more important. Skills can learn, skills can be hired. So you, you should be looking at those people who can bring those things in. Of course, like you're building a software startup, you have no one taking on your team, then you're gonna be going on the right. Uh, Beyond like the basics, you know, you are really looking at a person and their commitment. I think that's very important. So for me to find a co-founder, um, I actually it's my uh, current you know hypothetic that's one of the IDP innovation design program module uh, project, uh, which is a double map that's my final year project for university. And there we built you know there was a team at time uh, to work on the project. So with this team, you know, I assess who am I working with uh, very well. Would really challenges me to do better as well, and I propose to my co-founder like, let's can you join the co-founder. 
the rest of them who uh you know who have different interests and different goals i don't think it's a good fit and you are able to accept that because everybody wants to try at the start but trying is not enough you need to deliver yep in the start yep so uh actually actually recently on news right i've seen a lot of uh, articles about how a lot of tech firms are starting to fire people and then perhaps like a uh, dry powder for fundraising is starting to uh, wear out. Are you are you worried about this in any way? I think we are a little bit not set uh, directly because, uh, like I said, our area is already like there's nobody wants uh, to invest in our at, at this stage. So we are looking at clients and the clients, they usually won't invest unless something that really benefits them. So we are a bit insulated from that space. But I can tell you that uh, I think now the investment climate is more towards like, uh, it's no longer about, I mean, like I said, the same thing, it's no longer about, they're not going to pay you money to go and practice and learn to a startup. They're going to pay you money to get your, their return on investment. And they're going to be very, very, you know, vigilant about it compared to before. So that's what I noticed. But like I said, I think for us, we have already been at the extreme end of the fire. So from day one, so we have to go to that route. And uh, that will be a success, right? So actually, I have a sort of like a personal question. So because I think you're on the on the very right path to becoming a software engineer, that's a very lucrative career by itself. It, it can also be very fun and challenging at the same time, uh, you know, tackling problems. So, do you, do you feel any like uh? So before you jump into this entrepreneurship full time, right? Do you have any huge considerations about the opportunity cost? I think when I even joined university, I already knew I don't want to be a software engineer. I think I joined because I want to learn tech, I want to do business from day one. So a bit different for me, I can understand. Of course, I do look at my friends getting their $9,000, $10,000 paycheck. And here I might minus 3000 a month. So yeah, it's a minus 3000 So I'm losing PK from home every month right now. But at the same time, I think at the end of the day, it's like this is the life I want. Like, you know, from day one, I never imagined myself working. And when I did get a chance to intern as a software engineer, why uh, well, I enjoyed all the tech, but there was always this portion about, like, I want to build something on my own from which was missing. So I guess there's a different, you know, initial objectives. I never had that in mind, so never really concerned about it. But again, uh, I can say that for my co-founder, it was a bit more of a, a calculated decision because uh, financial commitments at home uh, for you know our family and everything are important so for him he really had to see like you know where is this thing going to go if I commit to it or you know for example are we going to get funding runway going to get funded so those things will affect the decision making for me uh, a little bit different because it was okay with you know being like impoverished uh, for a period of time if I have to uh, partly because uh, thankfully I'm blessed uh, you know, my family can support me so if I really have to. So that's why I was going down this route. So, uh, I recently, so I'm I'm in a tech firm now as a PM intern. Then I I feel like every developer there is so smart. <laughs> you know, like uh, so is there is there a way to differentiate like what what makes a good software engineer? Is it their tech stack or maybe their hard work or is there like some some weird way that they think that is unique that they right. able to spot things very fast. Like, is there any way to differentiate between okay. them? Okay, man. Uh, you're asking me a very good question because uh, 
You are I I mean, I have to think like a pro, uh, product manager rather than like an engineer. Yeah. So I get to see both sides of the point. Um, honest proof, I think uh, one of the things is that when you're in the engineering mindset, you're looking about what's the best engineering solution, the most robust, most reliable way to do things. Um, from a product mindset, it depends on priorities. Like, for example, if you're early, you want things to get up and running, they can test them a little bit, customers can change it again. We want something that can move fast. I think that communication about the objective needs to be done and you know firmly through the engineering team. And the team also needs to communicate their interests firmly to the prototype. So both have very really divergent you know, areas that they are very, very important. And it is normal, it is natural and healthy as well. But uh, the communication platform needs to be there. I think in Singapore versus Silicon Valley, one of the key things I noticed is communication. In Singapore, from any trade tickets on GitHub or you know, any of the pretty software, engineers are assigned to a ticket, make it happen and do this. Like this minimal communication. Things move fast, but uh, you may not necessarily be as expected. In Silicon Valley is very, very slow. People talk more than they do. You can spend two weeks doing nothing. Engineering is doing nothing. Literally going from meetings to product, to review, 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 you know, talk and talk, challenge, have a lot of fights to come towards the conclusion and then they go and do their thing. And the product will still be like thinking, oh, is this, how is this going? Is this good enough? Is this all right? So I think that's the communication loop, although it's annoying, it slows things down. But I think running a team, uh, having that communication with product engineering is very, very important. So what makes a good software engineer, in my view, would be someone who can step out of the engineering mindset once in a while. Think about the broader objective because at the end of the day, how does this? If you are just a, if you are doing like generic software engineer, not doing something high precision or high intellectual property, engineers can be higher and higher. Understood, Rishabh. Um, so Ash, right? Because previously you said, for example, you had leads and interest coming in already with that. Um, sorry, not the live demo, but the I won't say mock up your video lah, basically, right? And I also know that uh, technically you are like head engineer, right? You are the brains of behind the, the operation. So I guess my question is, how do you delegate roles between your, your co-founder and stuff? Like, are you doing sales? Are you doing uh, product design? What is he doing? And yeah, how do you split the responsibilities there? Okay, I think, I think um, I'll let me take out the tech completely first. So tech is something for us, we have a unique model that works for us. It not work for everything. It doesn't follow the traditional black and white uh, kind of a boundary. So uh, I'll take out tech first. When it comes to other parts of the operations, you know, for example, uh, pitching, sales, uh, those stuff, versus operational stuff like financial modeling, planning, milestones. So let's put it this way. As founders, we both need to know everything yeah. at this stage. Okay. Um, for me, I guess I have to know even a little bit more because I have to I have the awareness of both sides. But um, how we play is that well, one is between a CEO and CEO, both their roles overlap a lot. Like my mom, he definitely can take over. He's now in the pretty takeover. But for greater purposes to not burn out, what we do is that for me, I'll be the front and I'll be the guy with the front who is the one who is pitching, who's kind of like in a way the face who is at the in front of the team and meeting the people at the top. Whereas he's the guy who is behind the team, you know, uh, gathering the team, getting all the resources, checking on them, allocating them. So that is for operations and for sales and marketing. Then we come to tech. 
tech is a big element for us because the early stage team, the two founders, and we also tech people at the moment. What we did is we worked with our skill sets and specialties. Come to hardware, we settled. Come to electrical and software engineering, our settled. Electrical is something that both of us are weak at. We're not electrical engineers. We were, uh, we were both consult each other. So that's how it works. Uh, I think at the end of the day, any form of uh, organization works as long as you have a kind of like a boundary on what you know is your work and what is not your work. And uh, and things that both of you are of, you are able to communicate about it, the team will move well and fast. In fact, it doesn't have to be black and white. A lot of people emphasize you need to really break down black and white. This is my work to your work. Uh, I don't agree on that. I feel like it's very fluid. It's an early case. You need to do a lot of different things beyond your own thing. I ended up doing financial modeling. Come on. Yeah. Why? Because the CEO, I need to know the financial modeling. I need to know when I'm talking to, uh, you know, people that I'm in, going to invest so I can negotiate with. I need to know it. So even though uh, uh, my co-founder, I have the analysis background, I had to work with him to understand some of these things slowly and get up to speed as well. So this are certain things you just have to do it. Yeah, understood. You said, uh, there's one thing you said just now. Like, you said it's hard to raise funds because of the structure of your product. Like the hardware, I'm guessing deep tech space, right? It's harder to raise. Is that a reason of uh, the Singapore landscape, like Asian, a bit more conservative? Or is it more like uh, the scalability of the business model? People look at it and I like, don't think hey, Singapore yeah. is conservative. I think that, 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 that is a myth, I think, and uh, to the away. Singapore is definitely not conservative. If you look at how they're investing in the web free and crypto startup, Singapore is throwing money over everywhere. I think that used to be a case in the past, but now I don't think Singapore is conservative. Singapore is very pragmatic, mm. a bit more, uh, definitely not as impulsive as Silicon Valley. They tend to be a lot more. Uh, but give me a second, my headphones. Your audio is much better now. Go ahead. Okay. Is it better? Yeah, it's much better. <laughs> Really? Wow. Yeah, without the headphones, it's better. Okay. So I think uh, what I was saying was that uh, Singapore is not conservative. Uh, I think Singapore is a lot more towards like, if I give you this money, what will happen? You know, you need to have a bit of awareness, projections, and, uh, you know, spend out some deliverables. And I think Singapore will invest. Singapore doesn't like to invest in things that, you know, don't have a head or a tail. I think that's how I put it. Silicon Valley... They tend to be a bit more and you know a bit more lenient on that. But if you come to the later stage startup, I don't think anybody is going to be lenient to you anymore. Yeah. So early stage, yeah, they are a bit more forgiving. You know, they may be like, sure, we will help you to you know come up with your milestones. We'll help you to do all these things. So they don't mind investing first and then figuring things out later. Singapore is like, we will like, we will guide you along, but this is before we invest in you. So we must achieve those things first, then we invest in you. But I think either model works. There's not a big issue, but I think Singapore's model does force you to work a little bit harder, put in a bit more effort and really get things right. Yep. So the original question was, the, so why is it hard to raise for your specific tar product? Okay, so why is this hard to raise is because uh, for uh, VCs, they are looking at uh, return on investment that comes fast and, and can scale fast. Mm -hmm. For hardware, the thing is that a typical time to market can be your three to four years. Uh, they, and then there's also inventory costs. So they need to pay you more money to build more of your product so you can scale. Mm. So the risk for them gets higher and higher. Means that the bigger the company grows, they need to pump in even more money. Yep. 
So uh, until your revenue breaks even and then you can move forward. So that whole portion can take six to seven years. And that's why uh, VC stand a little bit wary. Uh, whereas, for example, if you're looking at industry players who are in those industries and they need certain solutions, they don't mind because they need it anyway. So they will invest. Yep. So that's why the VC segment for uh, hardware startups can be a bit more challenging. But there are ways to mitigate it. For example, uh, having a, you know, a generic hardware and then having some more subscription to it that can scale faster, a software-based uh, intelligence yep. that you can, yep. you, know, money, you can monetize and you can make your product and visit the scale, then they are okay with it because then the scalability comes in and everything can move faster. Yeah. Okay, so one more story. So uh, in your mind, right, because you're pitching projection, you're pitching to, hey, you're selling a dream basically. So do you see yourself yeah. as, okay, we do toilet cleaning first, we do like mirrors and stuff and then urinal and stuff and then we try to dominate the toilet and then on the back end, have that, like you said, the recurring software thing or do you plan to just like uh, robotics in general or like, like what's your vision uh, basically? Hmm. Our vision is to be the leading robotic company in the world that will automate things that humans shouldn't do. Okay. So not only the toilet. So not only the toilet. I think that's uh, something that we have as a vision. So how we get there, uh, there's going to be a lot of meanders along the way. Like our current stage is to get our first product out to market first. Everything else, we were also thinking like, why not? Okay, we build this thing concurrently. Let's launch a food thing. Concurrently launch this A B C D E. But I think at the end of the day, we are we are humans. Limited energy. Um, we have to focus on certain things. Like for example, if I were to take eighteen months to get my robot out, versus if I you know cut out every other thing and get it out in like six months by paying more money or whatnot, whatever it is, I get the market faster, I validate my product faster, I scale faster. And then when the things are stabilized, then I can think about other things. So end of the day, I think uh, our company wants to really move extremely fast. We really want to start uh, working on developing partnerships and solving problems for real people. And, and uh, hopefully we present them a good enough solution that can uh, one day inspire their confidence in us and allow us to scale globally. Um, speaking about like uh, scaling fast, having a big vision and just curious, right? Have you guys uh, pivoted uh, at all? Like, like throughout the lifetime of the company, have you guys pivoted and why? Our company officially has not started yet. We just filed for incorporation yesterday. So, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> so the lifespan of the company right now is the pre-incorporation lifespan yeah, yeah. we're talking about. Um, of course, there were a lot of pivots, but I think um, we were a bit lucky in the sense that we really hit a product uh, kind of like that. We hit kind of like a product market fit quite fast because I think we all know the problem. We know that why is the solution? It's just that the solution doesn't exist. Uh-huh. That's basically the case for us. And we're trying to build that solution that doesn't exist. And to be very frank, it is a high risk for, you know, at that initial stages when we started because if nobody else has done it before there's no precedence why the challenges to get this thing done how difficult can it be we had no idea but now i think uh, after you know all the things that we have done we're pretty confident and uh, we know that it is achievable or the only thing was that you know it required certain technologies to be enabled first in the world which are now publicly available the time to market is much shorter you need less uh, you don't need so much experience or expertise to get a lot of these things moving. For example, uh, for example, let's say you wanted to build that uh, mobile application, but Android didn't exist. 
you can't build it, right? You have to build like your own firmware and every single thing. But now Android exists, so you can build a mobile application, deploy it to the app store, everything goes fast. So similarly, in the robotic world, the widespread adoption of ROS, robotic operating system, has helped us a lot. A lot of libraries have come up that enable us to do arm manipulation and interaction very, very well. So most of the pivot has been uh, like product design and stuff like that, is it? Yes. Yes, a lot of it is more technical pivots, you know. For example, what is the approach are we going to do? Uh, if you look at my first and the second video, if you saw our YouTube channel, you see that our entire robot design has uh, changed significantly. Then that product that we were trying to do has also evolved. Like for example, trying to build something a human can push and manually align and you automatically clean to something that definitely has to move autonomously. So those things are changes that we learn from our customers and we realize what will work and what will not work. So the... I mean, because the company has just established then uh, probably there'll be more people to come in the future, right? Mm, I think we are, there will definitely be, you know, I won't call this pivot. So pivot is something mm. where your entire solution itself, you know, is changed uh, yep. to solve a similar problem. So I think we are not pivoting. We are basically iterating the product development or the product design and cycle. I see, got it. So uh, actually, uh, I was a little curious because I, I used to I try to build a sort of like a hardware-based tech startup as well. But then gaming. The, the, gaming. Gaming, yeah, in gaming. But the issue is uh <laughs> we ran into a lot of technical difficulties in terms of trying to get like because we're trying to work with um other companies, right? By not working with them directly. So we're trying to use, use their APIs and uh you know just do it. But then that seems to be a restriction. You, you guys won't ever deal with that kind of issue, right? I mean, uh, what kind of restrictions are you talking about? So, for example, uh, we wanted to build an app that allows you to, uh, say, automate the uh, overclocking of a GPU from your phone. So, this requires you to perhaps gain some access to, for example, NVIDIA's uh, API to tweak things around. And that wasn't available. So, is this kind of issue something that you guys foresee you may face? Because, because of that, right, it completely like, shut, down, <laughs> shut down the entire idea for me and my friends. Okay, sorry, can you repeat the last part? Because the sound got a little bit cut off. Oh yeah, so uh, it's because of that issue, right? That uh, I think the founders at the time- oh, sorry, uh, what was that issue? The issue was uh, we weren't able to perhaps uh, gain access to open APIs provided by hardware companies okay. that provide tech products, yeah. We have a little bit of that issue, but I think first thing is we don't even know what are the APIs because some of these are mm. closed, right? Yep. So uh, one of the ways to mitigate it for us was finding people who have worked in the industry. We have not worked in the industry. Mm -hmm. So we find people who tell us, okay, you can approach this person to get this API. You need to pay this much money, get it over and then move it. So I think money is very important because when mm -hmm. you have money, you can do a lot of things. Money can buy time. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So that's one number one. Uh, number two is also, I think... Uh, I, I, like I said, like me and my co-founder, we are no longer the person who are doing the hands and legs for every single technical mm. stuff that needs to be done. We have focused on what is our core technology that we need to develop. Everything else, yep. we use something that already exists. Core technology. Don't try to build, don't try to reinvent the wheel. Let's say you're trying to make a faster mm. car. You don't make the wheel and the frame and everything from scratch again. You yep. focus on maybe a portion, an engine, for example, right? 
and you try to think about how can you make the engine faster. You don't try to build like a new wheel design that can, of course, you know, one day when you have the expertise for every single thing, they can iterate everything up, but you don't like think of maybe a square shaped wheel yeah. make a car faster, right? So that's why we're trying to say that we are, we used to be trying to do everything ourselves. We learned from that mistake. Mm-hmm. We spent too long, six plus months on it, wasting time, getting nothing done, getting stuck at all over everything. Yep. But we realized when certain things, if money can buy you time, money can buy you experience, pay money, get up to speed, learn. From, because when you see other people's code, the network and stuff, you also understand what the market, the technical yep. you know, market in the sense, where to get what and you can move faster. So that's my experience over. Yeah, I think me and my co-founder, we face this issue at time. We try to do everything then. We try to save money. Yeah. But the thing is saving money yeah, in, in the short term leads to the entire thing failing. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly the same thing happened with us. Yep. So during grip, we got $10,000. We didn't want to spend a single cent off. Okay. We yep. built a prototype, the first prototype that half work, half didn't work. And uh, even with that, we paid like, you know, household company to build the hardware for us. Yep. But uh, after that, we realized like, you know, we can't do this ourselves. We need a more expensive robot arm. We're trying to buy a robot arm that fits within the budget and then trying to improvise it so we can do the tasks we need to do. It just simply doesn't mean. It's too so I think, yeah. I think you gave a very good advice about not trying to reinvent the wheel, uh, especially to people who's trying to like start up companies. So actually I have a, Further, further question to that, like, uh, what other tips you have for people trying to start out, but with particular regards to not just any startup, but uh, mostly related to tech? I think, uh, I think number one is do not, like, I have some friends who do startups and then uh, they're not willing to go the extra mile, like, if their friends drop out or whatnot. I mean, especially if you're the main founder, you're the first person to start the whole idea and everything. You must be willing to go alone. And, you know, even if everything fails and stuff, if you really believe in it, you must be willing to go alone. That's the first one. Second thing is, you know, uh, look, uh, find people, don't find machines. Find mm-hmm. people who believe in the same vision as you, uh, believe in the same, you know, uh, direction as you or you know you guys can work out a common direction that both of you are agreeable to and find them to join your team don't find machines they'll ask you uh what to do next then you'll do find machines then and you expect a machine to be a co-founder for example you will not work you need to be challenged you need a co-founder who will challenge you who will have a divergent view from you but you are able to reconcile and find something that's common and move forward that's the second advice. The advice is, uh, you know, for technical co-founders, get out engineering head. Mm-hmm. Think about business and product. A lot of things money can buy. Think about getting money to get the things done as well. If you try to save money forever, you can. It is a route, to be very frank. It is a route. But sometimes if you're not experienced enough, you can end up burning yourself very, very badly. Um, just one more question because uh, I, I am non-technical. So when I wanted to start a tech startup with my friends at the other time, right, I felt very um, a bit lost at, at how things are progressing at times. So do you think um, it's best or even necessary to know technical skills when trying to start out a tech company? Or is it uh, it's better to have someone who knows their stuff or 
rather than a case where all the co-founders are not technical no, trying to start tech from nobody knows anything everyone is learning on the job so mm. you if i am not a tech person i have a, a mentor who's not a tech person at all mm. he wanted a robot to you know pick up noodles and you know uh, and throw it into the, the heating machine he got it done. You know how he did it? Oh. He go and find the people at tech, get advice from them, put together the PowerPoint slide and mm-hmm. go to one of the polytechnics and get them to build it for him, pay them money and got that. And he's out in market. So I don't think you need... You, okay, resourceful. Tech people, yeah, mm-hmm. you need to be resourceful. You need to think about getting things done rather than like doing things. I think that's the main thing, uh, especially for founders. Um, you Your time is very precious. You okay. can't be like doing everything and uh, you need to focus on the things that uh, most important decisions that need to be done by you and no one else can really take so you need to focus on those things Richard, can I ask right because uh, I run advertising campaigns for physical product companies so the biggest issue is always uh, the, you sell inventory for your first batch and then you're supposed to take the cash flow and the profits from the first batch to fund to basically buy inventory for the second batch right? and most of the time uh, the capital is just not enough or the cash flow is not enough because advertising spend, for example, too competitive, you know, not profitable enough, et cetera, et cetera. So with that being said, you definitely have to raise, right? But what, what are you, how much are you, how much do you think do you plan to raise and like, how do you plan to deploy that capital? Yeah, I think for us, um, that's why for robotics and stuff, you know that you need, you, you will need to burn capital for inventory. Um, but the thing is that for us, we have a recurring revenue. Recurring revenue is a very important element. Your upfront payment, you know, may only cover a little bit, but you need to have recurring revenue that will, once you sell a certain threshold amount of uh, robots, for example, then recurring revenue, you know, uh, outstrips the, the, the expenses that you have. And that's when you break even and you go profitable. So for us, recurring revenue is it's like Gillette Eraser. Gillette doesn't make money by selling you the, the machine at once. They make money by selling you the razors again and again and again. Yeah. So how, how much do you plan to raise? Uh, also, I guess, uh, I think you raised 100K first, right? You already raised 100, right? So can, can you tell me more about that process? The process for 100K was quite simple because it's through an accelerator and it's uh, usually they will give a convertible note. Convertible note is technically a loan. That means that you need to raise more money and then... Uh, the loan will convert to equity. Otherwise, it's a loan that needs to be repaid. So basically, we raised $100,000, which is a convertible note, and we need to raise more money to convert to equity. How much more is a bit confidential at this moment because you can estimate the size of the contract if we tell you the number. Yeah, understood. And the size of the contract is, I'm guessing, high six figures, seven figures, that sort of thing, right? So Sorry, for, I cannot share. Yeah, yeah, no Yeah, but yeah. it's more like, um, who is building that? Like imagine like Hilton Hotel goes to reach up and it's like, hey, can you bill us 70 right now? Or like in the next three months, for example. So do you plan to like just hire a ton of people once the money comes to the bank? Or like um, like how do you think that manufacturing process is going? No, no, no. I think it's very milestone-based because I need to evaluate the capabilities of my team, you know, what we can build, you know, develop in the next few phases. So phase by phase, we have deliverables that we planned out and we reach out to these people telling them that, you know, we'll develop this whole product you know, you invest in our company, so you are owner of the IP itself. And subsequently, when you buy from us, you know, you get a discounted rate and whatever not. So, uh, and, you know, this product will solve the problem for you. You can scale it to the market. So please invest in us. So that's what we go to them and tell them. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, Brenton, I think you got no other questions. This is the last question for you. <laughs> Sorry, I got a lot of questions. But 
who's the CEO like you are following or studying um, that you look up mm. to and stuff. Yeah. Okay, so the person that I really look up to is Ratan Tata, the the current or just I think recently stepped down chairman of the Tata Group in India. So why? Because uh, I think they are it's a conglomerate. It's not a startup. It's actually a conglomerate. Yeah. The reason why is because I've constantly seen them you know, grow bigger and bigger and bigger. They have always been, they're now not there are technical. They have everything in their field. I've been reading about their biographies on how, you know, for example, there was a radio company that was not doing very well. He had 20% market share, went down 2%. So when this CEO went in, you know, he was asked by his dad, who was the then chairman, to go and, you know, revive this company. Every company he went to, he revived it, made it profitable. And uh, how he did that is by, for example, this uh, radio company was making normal radios that, you know, you listen to household radios in the 1980s. So this radio companies is outcompeted in the market and has 2% market share. So how do you solve the problem of market share? You think of a mind-blowing new idea. So you start making satellite radios. And suddenly there's a niche. You capture a niche, you become profitable, you can expand out, move away. So that's why, partly why we are looking at, you know, doing power cleaning and stuff because it's a niche it's a market segment that needs the product. The product has a very, very pain, a fire on the ass kind of a need for it. And uh, if we deliver it, we are solving a problem that will make us profitable. Okay. I'm so guessing, that's why I, I, yeah. I'm guessing you're the type, like you're hardcore, even if, for example, Hilton comes to you, uh, Rishabh, uh, let's acquire your company for six mil. You probably won't take, right? Because I know your grand vision is just much more than that. Am I right to say that? Mm, I think acquisition is something it's not so straightforward like what am I getting in return by acquisition uh, you're getting um, a higher position at a Hilton Hotel they are director of product or no, whatever it is it's not, okay. it's not, it's not <laughs> like that I okay. think. so I think acquisitions is something uh, in fact uh, for a company like mine after a certain stage I might actually look towards acquisition because uh, the thing is that you need a certain you need a different team a different experience to move it from then on and for me, I might need to you know, take a step back to learn before I can do. So learning is very important. And uh, if I have to take a step back so I can learn how do you scale a company from, you know, a um, $100 million company to a billion dollar company, then probably we have to take that step back and learn. So uh, that's why I'm not worried about acquisition. Acquisition is okay. But uh, it's again a case about why are you trying to build, bring this thing towards uh, if I if hypotics doesn't work out, you know, for some reason or other, um, the knowledge that I've gained is not going to go away. I still work towards my vision. Maybe it's robotics. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's suddenly space robots. Who knows, right? So, but things will move. They'll constantly move. Okay, Ken. Uh, okay, so how do people reach you? Um, and yeah, how do we get in touch with you? How do they find out more about Hive Robotics? Yeah. I think best place to reach out to me is LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. Um, even for Hypebotics, uh, we don't have a website up yet. It'll be up soon. So LinkedIn has all our updates and YouTube, we have been updating our uh, videos uh, on our YouTube channel as well. I think that's a very comprehensive update on our current status. So yeah, check out these three places, LinkedIn, uh, YouTube, and our upcoming website that will be done up soon. So very simple, we are called Hypebotics. So just search up www.hypebotics.tech uh, once the website is up or on Google, you can just search up Hypebotics and probably see our YouTube channel and our LinkedIn. Okay, Ken, thank you guys. And uh, thank you, Rishabh, for your time. Thank you. Thank you guys for inviting me.